Welcome to the Sandy Springs United Methodist Church Podcast, where we bring you weekly sermons that uplift your soul, strengthen your spirit, and praise the Lord. Whatever your reason for listening, we're grateful for you spending your time with us. May God open your heart to love and your ears to hear. The scripture reading for today is 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not loved, I am only resounding gong or clinging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mystery and knowledge, and if I have faith that can move the mountains, but have not loved, I am nothing. If I give all the pose to the poor and surround my body, surrender my body to the flames, but not have loved, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects always trust, always hopes, and always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there, are where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see, but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three things remain. These three things remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Some of you may know and be aware that at the end of this month in St. Louis, Missouri, the General Conference of the United Methodist Church is having a special called session to vote on the denomination's direction on the issue of homosexuality. Since 1972, when the United Methodist Church set parameters in the Book of Discipline, which is basically our book of rules and laws for ministry in the United Methodist Church, in 1972, when they set parameters for ministry to, with, and by, persons who identify as homosexuals, the United Methodist Church has struggled with this matter, not unlike many of our own lives, families, communities. And in 2016, the General Conference got together and said, we're doing a lot of good as a church, but every time we gather every four years as the legislative body of the denomination, we seem to have an impasse over this one issue. So in 2016, a commission was enacted called the Commission on a Way Forward that was appointed by 
the bishops to make recommendations for the direction the denomination would go. And the commission was charged with this uh, specific language, finding a way forward for our church that maximizes the presence of United Methodist Witness in as many places in the world as possible, that allows for as much contextual differentiation as possible, and that balances an approach to different theological understandings of human sexuality with a desire for as much unity as possible. And in about four weeks, the General Conference, which is the top legislative body of the United Methodist Church, is going to gather and discuss and vote on the way forward. Not with the hope of drawing a line in the sand, but with the hope of finally being about the mission and ministry of the church, to focus on what we share, to focus on what we do, and to focus on the things that unite us rather than the things that divide us. And I know this morning in this place that some of you here are dyed in the wool United Methodists. Your daddy and your mama were Methodists, their daddy and their mama were Methodists, and you'll be a Methodist. Now there may also be some of you here who have come to love the denomination because of the emphasis on personal and spiritual holiness, the importance of provenience and justifying and sanctifying grace, or because you find United Methodist theology to be some of the best that you've ever encountered. Others of you here this morning may be visiting or on the edges of the denomination or even on the edge of the church. You're just here testing us out and kicking the tires this morning. But some of you are here because someone invited you through a personal invitation or even through the nudge of the Holy Spirit. And I know that most of you probably are here right now and have heard me say the word homosexuality and you're already on edge wondering how you're going to spend the next 20 minutes while I'm talking. <laughs> this is not one of those sermons where we're going to talk about a way that I'm going to convince you or change your mind or shame you or control the narrative while I hold you hostage while I talk. Because I'm going to start with the fact today that we are all here. Not who your mom and dad were, not how you came into this church, but with the fact that you are here, that you are here and you are welcome. Because first and foremost, this is not my church to welcome you into, and it's not your church to welcome others into. This is God's church. It is not my church. It is not your church. This is God's church, and you are here. You are here because you are carrying burdens and grudges and graces and barriers and brokenness and revival and hope and optimism and anxiety and worries and joy and pleasure and pain and anticipation and everything in your fiber and your being that makes you a child of God. And if you are here, then God is here because this is God's church. That's the message that Paul is trying to write to the church in Corinth. At that time, Corinth was the New York City of Greece. If Rome was the political and philosophical headquarters, then Corinth was the New York City. It's where everyone wanted to be, but not in the New York City that we see romanticized in film and television 
today where it's neat and clean and there's tourists and people willing to take their pictures with you in Times Square. I'm talking about the New York of Robert De Niro and Taxi, like the New York of the 80s, where seedy shops are on every corner in Times Square, where there's rampant drugs everywhere, where pain and hurt and oppression and injustice are awaiting on every corner. That's what Corinth is when Paul is writing his letter to the Corinthians. And in this town of Corinth, this hub of the world, there was a small group of people that got together and tried to find a way to live because they heard about Jesus of Nazareth, who taught love and compassion, release of the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, who proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor. They heard about his death, they heard about his resurrection, and they wanted to know that power, to be part of something different. They wanted a different way of living for a different way of life, and so they came to church. They read scriptures, they sang songs, they heard teachings, and they knew and they believed that God was doing a new thing in them and through them. They also knew that they were imperfect, but they sought perfection through the power of Christ. Their reasons for coming into the fellowship may have been as varied and as different as ours, our, as ours are today. But the people of Corinth were there, just like you and I are here today. And where two or more are gathered in Christ's name, a committee is formed and enacted upon legislation. Where two or more are gathered, God is in our midst. Not based upon who we are or what we bring with us, but where two or more are gathered, we bring everything that we are to God, and God gives everything that God is to us. Through the real-life power struggles and political struggles that they experienced in the church in Corinth, they wanted more than anything, to follow Christ. And they needed Paul to help them. They sought out Paul to give them guidance. Because the reality of the church in Corinth is that it's a community where love has gone in the wrong direction. And it's probably driven off the road so it's not even seen anymore. The church in Corinth is a splintered, divided community of faith. And they tell each other, if you read in chapter 12, leading up to chapter 13, I have no need for you. And so Paul writes about love, because some church members are in need of a love transfusion in their lines through the blood of the cross. And it's clear that many did not have that love running through their veins. They spoke with tongues of mortals and of angels. They had prophetic powers to understand all mysteries and all knowledge and had faith to move mountains. They gave away all their possessions, including handing over their body. They leapt tall buildings in a single bound. Here come the super-Christians of Corinth on the surface. But underneath, below 
the sanctified skin of salvation, love was missing, missing in action. And without love, they were nothing more than a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. They're ding-dongs, and they're nothing, and they gain nothing. Nothing without love but ding-dongs. Gossiping about someone to undercut his or her integrity makes you a ding-dong. Consumed with one's own spiritual gifts without concerns for another's spiritual growth makes you a ding-dong. Boasting in a social justice pedigree of involvement but still having problems loving the people sitting next to you in the pew makes you a ding-dong. Joining the spiritual gymnastics Olympic team but having not love makes you nothing but a ding-dong. Because we as Christians can be loud and still act without love. Because all spiritual action is meaningless unless it's infused by and grounded in God's love. That agape love that harnesses and gives life to our every activity. It's the love that makes us question ourselves before we take action. Why am I doing this? Is it for love? Is it in love? Is it out of love? We can add up all of our spiritual powers and activities from our Christian to-do list but it might not ever equal love on the other side of the equation. But Paul here is offering a more excellent way. There's a lot of talk about what makes one excellent in one's field, but in the Christian way of life, the path of love is the only thing that makes us excellent. Not just our path in love, but Christ's path in love for us. And Paul wants unity in love and says that without love, we are nothing. Love is the gift of God to govern the gifts that we have. Love is the sign and the depth of our spirituality, no matter how extroverted or introverted we may be. They will know we are Christians by our love. So why is God's love so important? Because without it, we are nothing. Without it, we are just religious posers and fakes. Love is so important because those are the two greatest commandments that Jesus gave us. They're the ones that we heard as we had new members join our church this morning. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Not love the sinner as yourself, but love your neighbor as yourself. Maybe we would do well to hear those words of love again, to know what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not rejoice in itself, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. God's love never fails, and it's past that romantic love, that I love you love that they say or wait for in the movies, and moves us towards the essence of knowing that love loves. Love is not a belief. 
but love is a behavior. Love, rightly understood, then, should constrain that desire to be super-Christians who want nothing more than to show our own works and love. Because love binds the community together in mutual suffering and rejoicing. Love seeks upbuilding rather than the place of advantage. Love reminds us when we encounter it that we still need it. Paul reminds us that we do not know everything. That we do not know in full but only in part. So why do we live like we know everything? Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, but then I will know fully when God's love takes over my life, even as I have been fully known. Perhaps we've forgotten what it's like to love. Perhaps we need to discover a love for the basic things of life. Maybe it's better if we were honest about the ways that we approached love in this life. Maybe it was better if we realized that all of us have our own problems as we approach God's love. There's a story about an aspiring chef in Paris named Remy, who is idealistic, and he wants nothing more than to be the most renowned, famous chef that he can be. There's only one problem for Remy. He's a rat. Literally, a rat, not a metaphorical rat. He's literally a rat. This is Disney's Ratatouille, for those of you who want to fill in the blanks. See, Remy is outside in the garbage trying to put together a delectable meal for his family and he sees a young garbage boy Alfredo Linguini uh, it would be great to be a Disney name uh, character writer Alfredo Linguini spills a pot of soup and tries to recreate it and Remy the rat rushes over to try and put this bowl of soup together and somehow convinces Alfredo Linguini to take it back inside and serve it to the sous chef Skinner who was not a fan of Alfredo Linguini. In fact, he had just fired him, but because the soup tastes better than what he could do, he rehires Alfredo on the spot and promotes him to chef. But Alfredo has a problem. He can't cook. So he relies on the help of Remy the rat who sits in his chef's hat and pulls upon his hair to guide him like a marionette. And what happens is Remy and Alfredo together create some of the best meals that the city of Paris has ever known. And people are lined up, but they don't know the truth, that there's a rat in the kitchen. This is all building up until we get to the climax of the movie where the food critic Anton Ego, whose negative review process preceded the restaurant owner's death. Everyone was so afraid of this critic that he was rumored to have caused deaths of all the famous chefs in Paris. And so the rats, Remy, and Alfredo Linguini, and the rest of the kitchen team who are by now in on the secret have no idea how they're going to get a dish served to the world's harshest food critic. 
until Remy remembers one of his favorite dishes growing up, uh, ratatouille, which is a concoction of roasted vegetables and cream and cheese. And it's a simple dish, not one that you would serve at a fancy restaurant because it's vegetables, but it reminds Anton Ego, the critic of his own problems. He got into being a food critic because he loved food. But somewhere along the way, he fell out of love with loving food. And he loved to be a critic more. And when he tastes this simple meal, it instantly reminded him of the love of his mother's kitchen. It reminded him of the love of home, and he remembered that he loved food. And he ends up writing the most glowing review, calling Remy the Rat nothing less than the finest chef in France. Of course, the health inspector shows up and shuts down the restaurant. Ego loses his job and his credibility, but he takes everything that he has and reinvests it into a new young chef team, Alfredo Fettuccini and Remy. And they have one of the most successful restaurants Paris has ever seen. Along the way, we fall out of love with the things that brought us to this place. Along the way in life, in the church, we fall out of love with God, not by our own fault, but by the turmoil and triumphs of life. You're invited to come to a meal, not prepared by rats, not prepared by sous chefs, but prepared by the one who has given us the greatest meal this world has ever known. The question as we come to this table this morning for communion is, will we come knowing the things that hold us back, knowing that we have fallen out of love with God and knowing that God wants nothing more than to love us back into the life of the church. And if God loves us enough to offer us this grace and this meal, would he not offer it to all who come to this table? We could come like Anton Ego, the food critic, and if you've come looking for something that's going to go wrong, then you will find something that's going to go wrong. But if you are here to fall more in love with Christ, more in love with your neighbor, then this is the meal that is for you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are loved which means that there is nothing that you can do that will set you apart from God's grace. For there is nothing, neither heights, nor depths, nor life, nor death, no darkness, nor powers, nor principalities that can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. So go and live with that love. May the peace of Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our arms. And may the love of God, the peace of Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sandy Springs United Methodist Church Podcast. 
We hope that you have found our podcast helpful and hope to be in ministry not only to you, but with you. For more information about Sandy Springs United Methodist Church, please visit www.ssumc.org. Until next time, may God bless you.